Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode 13, Ronald Reagan, Across Europe, This Wall Will Fall. With me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant, history buff. If there's something in electoral history he doesn't know, it is not worth knowing. Luke. Well, we're, we're closing the volume today with uh, a speech that most people who pick up this book, uh, it will have happened within their lifetimes or close to within their lifetimes. Um, and yet it also seems to come from a bygone world. Yeah. Divided Germany, a divided Berlin, um, a comparatively liberalized Hungary on the cusp of Austria that is still, you know, under under control of of Soviet forces and, and a vast Soviet Union uh, stretching back. The symbol of that is the wall, the Berlin Wall. But the Berlin Wall is itself, in no ways, the necessary border between West and East. Um, when the Berlin Wall falls shouldn't necessarily have been the case that the fall of the Berlin Wall led to the collapse of East Berlin, let alone all of East Germany, let alone the entire Soviet Empire. Uh, the wall falls and two months later, Ceausescu's put up against a, a, a wall. A wall, yeah. Uh, I think a stake in his case, but with his wife. But uh, the the wall – and, and moreover, when the wall has, has collapses, there's already passage for East Germans into the West because of, of Hungary. The borders opened up um, under some conditions. But it's the, – the throbbing sort of population pressure to, to knock it down has been released just as a matter of history. It's, it's a curiosity that the fall of the wall led to the fall of the entire apparatus. And of course, it doesn't happen at once. Uh, people forget, but this one of the great achievements of the first Bush presidency is getting the Soviet Union to join the United States or at least support the American intervention in Iraq in 1991 uh, because it still exists. Nonetheless, something in the minds of the people of Europe, certainly of Germany and certainly of, of the world maybe writ large – came to see in the wall 
the power of an idea that transcended its actual power as a wall, as a barrier between uh, one people divided by uh, geostrategy. Um, lots of people participated in infusing the wall with its symbolic power. Uh, Germans certainly did. Um, the Pope certainly did. Even David Hasselhoff had a role. Uh, but few people gave the wall the symbolic power as the differentiator between a West for all of its flaws and an East that could not realistically or with good reason claim to be the moral counterpart of the West. Uh, John Le Carre in uh, one of his in one of his spy novels. I think the last one uh, of the George Smiley trilogy talks about the confrontation with the wall as the moment where the ambiguity about the decadence and um, bitterness and smallness of the West is put into clear sight in contrast with, with the East. Ronald Reagan was instrumental in giving the wall that material or that, that symbolic power and this speech is the prime mechanism by which he did that. But like all speeches, especially speeches of international nature, there's a lot of prologue and there's a lot of postlogue and the story is always much more interesting than the speech itself from the people who write it to the people who make it happen. How did we get to the Brandenburg Gate? Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about the wall. Uh, did you see it when it was up? Ever? No, no, no. I, I was too young. To, I, I remember it coming down but I didn't go to Europe until I was much older than uh, – I went through it. I went through Checkpoint Charlie. It was a – a NATO, a NATO junket for journalists and uh, it was Cold War ballet. It was a very weird experience. We were, we were on a, an American military bus. Uh, the four powers had agreed to divide the occupation of Berlin among themselves. So there was an American sector, a British sector, a French sector and then a Soviet sector. And then the three first ones – became West Berlin. The Soviet sector was handed off – shouldn't have happened but was handed off to uh, East Germany. But the four powers still had certain rights to travel around the city under certain conditions. So we journalists were on an American military bus and it went through Checkpoint Charlie which was at a specific uh, point in the Berlin Wall, a passage. And there the bus stopped though it didn't have to stop. But it did stop. And then these East, East German soldiers walked around it, peering in the windows. All the American military personnel took their name tags off because the East Germans had no business knowing who they were. Even though they were taking photos of them. Yeah, right. But they, they were. Yeah. no business knowing their names. They, of course, did not get on the bus. And then once they'd done their little walk around, the bus resumed its, its uh, passage. So, you know, that was this kind of – uh, ballet that occurred at the wall and because of the wall. Uh, the other thing that occurred during its existence was the deaths of East Germans trying to get across it. Now, um, uh, the generally accepted figure, there are some people who dispute it, say it should be larger, but the generally accepted figure at the time Reagan gives his speech, 137 people had been uh, killed uh, try, trying to cross over this wall. And that's, you know, that's a tiny number when you're talking about modern totalitarian incineration of persons. But what made it so striking is uh, 
the location. It's happening in the middle of this big internationally known city. You know, imagine, you know, Fifth Avenue or Connecticut Avenue or Wilshire Boulevard. This happening there. That's what was happening in Berlin. And, you know, there was an old lady who tried to jump across and she died and then there was a young, young men trying to clamor across and they get shot, you know. And, and it's, it's, it just keeps happening enough to make it an always provocative thing. Now, the, the man who ends up writing this speech, he's an old friend of mine, Peter Robinson, and he's, he's uh, written – a uh, very interesting account of the genesis of the speech, and it's available online. And uh, he got the phrase, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, from talking with Berliners as part of the uh, advance team for President Reagan's speech. He was going to go to Berlin. It was the 750th anniversary of Berlin. Uh, he'd already begun some arms reduction negotiations with Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, he was in the midst of those. It was unclear which way they would go. But he wanted to make a big speech in Berlin. And so Peter uh, Robinson goes to Berlin. He talks to a number of Berliners and he recounts a dinner party he had. And uh, one man said, you know, I have relatives on the other side of that wall. I haven't seen them in 20 years. And another one said, I pass it uh, every day going to work and there's a watchtower on the East German side and I, I see you know, a German soldier up there. You know, we're both Germans but you know, he's looking at me like I'm an animal in a zoo. And then a third person, a woman, said to Peter, you know, Gorbachev, he's, uh, he's new. He seems like a new sort of – Soviet leader. Uh, he's, you know, he's not 200 years old like all these apparatchiks we've had a string of. He's in his 50s and he's talking about opening and restructuring. If he's serious about any of that, he should come here and tear down this wall. So that's where Peter got the phrase. Reagan's speechwriting team is, is famous now, um, both collectively and some of them individually. Uh, they're very young when they're doing this. Uh, they're people who were born after, uh, mostly after Khrushchev. You know, they're, they're, they're folks who are, are certainly born after the Second World War, mostly after Korea. Uh, the, the high tension days of the Eisenhower administration and then, you know, the, the Kennedy presidency would not have been in living memory for most of these speechwriters. To tell Gorbachev to tear down the wall is an act of – it can be seen in two ways. One would be as aggression. Um, another would be of op optimism. Um, certainly a lot of the old guard sort of Sovietologists worried about being too aggressive with the Soviets, that anything would be a provocation and they sort of thought of the Soviets as easily provoked and ready to lash out. But almost everyone thought of the Soviet Union as something that wasn't going to disappear. Certainly, I mean very few people thought in – 1989 that the Soviet Union would be gone uh, by the time the next presidential election rolled around as a practical matter. Um, well, you know who may have had such a thought? I mean maybe he didn't date it but uh, 
and and I also refer to this when when Reagan was assembling his uh, his team for the 1980 election cycle. Mm-hmm. This is after he'd lost his race to Gerald Ford, and one of the early people he spoke to was uh, Richard Allen, who mm-hmm. was a foreign policy um, intellectual who who wanted to work for Reagan, and Reagan said to him. Um, you know, my view of, of the Cold War is is very simple. Some would say simplistic. It's we win and they lose. What do you think about that? You know, and that that's very Reagan-like. I mean, it's done sort of lightly. Right. It's done in the form of a joke. But it's also very Reagan-like in that he was very serious about that. He, he really meant that uh, communism was something that he had been thinking about for years. Uh, he had read about it. He'd been very moved by, uh, well, one one of the books was Whitaker Chambers' Witness, you know, bestseller by by an ex communist spy who 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 defected and became an eloquent opponent. And uh, so Reagan, you know, as with Roosevelt and the arsenal of, of of democracy, fireside chat. This is not a new thought for him. In, in the case of both men. These are issues that they have been thinking about for years and practically considering and practically devising plans and policies that will address these questions and hopefully move events in the right direction. He also has a a unique body of experience to be a vessel for a bold and optimistic vision for the future of a united Berlin because of his frankly unusual career. Uh, for a president. Now, two terms as a governor, especially of a large state like California, is much more conventional. Had run for president before, had been a speaker at Republican national conventions multiple times beforehand. Um, but there are you know, two previous parts of his career that, that one, make him a, an exemplar of forensic eloquence, which is how we sort of think of him, but also uh, ready him to, to talk in direct terms about a better future. His time in Hollywood as an actor, but then also as a pitchman for GE. How do those factor into this moment in his career? Well, uh, the Hollywood part maybe is more obvious. He's uh, he's used to speaking. He's used to hitting his mark. Uh, he's used to performing, and I don't mean that in necessarily a derisive sense. Uh, many great politicians. I think all great politicians and democracies have to be performers. And they do it in different ways. Uh, you know, Lincoln had his techniques. Roosevelt had his techniques. George Washington had his techniques. Uh, Reagan's were, were were forged in in Hollywood, and then his even his radio career before he got to Hollywood. Uh, what you mentioned of being a pitchman for General Electric, uh, General Electric sent him across the country as a corporate spokesman, and he would go from town, city to city, and factory to factory, and talked to employees and at first he started with Hollywood anecdotes and then he found, well, he got better responses by talking about the problems that these people had. You know, and he'd read up and he'd see what's going on and and one of his handlers said, we marinated him in middle America and that's true. They did. So he, he got used to interacting with, with such audiences and also being able to address their concerns and connect with them about their concerns. So this is a this is a skill set that he brought into politics and never you know never lost it. How does that 
skill set translate to the international stage? Because of course he's giving a speech in English that the citizens of the Soviet Union will not hear really um, or they're unlikely to hear. Yeah, though the Radio Free Europe service will pump it in its various languages. But the, the intended audience is an elite Soviet audience but also a Western audience really to kind of steal their resolve that it's possible to move away from this ossified system of uh, – of, of high Cold War, what we might call, into something in the wake of Glasnost and Perestroika that might look different and that might lead to things like the reunification of Berlin, if not the reunification of Germany and beyond. Right. That might get the tectonic plates really moving, moving right. in a serious way. Well, it's interesting that uh, Peter Robinson says that in one of his drafts, uh, he put his um, his uh, killer phrase or his his uh, his money phrase in German, he proposed that the president say, Herr Gorbachev, machen Sie dieses Tor auf. And uh, the senior speechwriter Tony Dolan said to him, what would you do that for? And Peter said, well, he's going to be talking to a German audience. Uh, give him his line in German. And uh, Dolan said, when you're writing for the president of the United States, give him his big line in English. <laughs> <laughs> well, which exactly addresses – right. A major part of your point that uh, this is a challenge to Gorbachev being delivered in the first instance to Berliners but it's, there's also an American audience here. And yet he is very mindful of the audience on the other side of the wall. You, you mentioned Radio Free Europe. Uh, that is not to be dismissed. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, they would certainly get this out there and Reagan himself said – this is this was in a in a in a conference about the remarks he was to deliver. He said, "This is what I would want them to hear. What I would want people in Eastern Europe to hear. I would want them to hear this challenge to Gorbachev. If if you're really serious about change, you can start it here by tearing down this wall." What is what is then the the cultural message that he's trying to transmit to the people on the other side? Is it is it a religious message like the popes? Is it a material message, you know, looking at the prosperity of the United States? What's the well? It's both. It's both. He you know he says that you look at the West West Berlin. It's it's free. It's prosperous. Uh, there are theaters. There there are shops. There are restaurants. There's there's all sorts of of economic and cultural activity. It's also religious. He says that uh, the eastern side uh, fears symbols of faith and he, he draws particular attention to what's called the Fernsehturm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's the great television tower that the East uh, Germans built uh, in East Berlin and it's like a, an immense needle with a sphere about two-thirds of the way up it and you know, you can go up to the sphere and look out. I think there's there's now a restaurant in it. But Reagan said, you know, they've got a problem with it, and you know, they've tried to fix it with with paint and all kinds of stuff. But when the sun shines on it, it makes a cross. You yeah. know, and that's the refraction of the light on a sphere. It makes this cross shape. And he wasn't making that up. I mean, Berliners actually joked about it, and they called it Pope's Revenge. <laughs> so, so he's he's drawing on that too. He's saying. Yeah, the other side, they are poor in this world and they don't want you to have symbols of, 
of, of faith, including the next world, and how to live in this world. They're, they're opposed to all of that. And that can't last. I mean, this, the thing about this speech, it's an optimistic speech. He's saying that shouldn't last, and it can't, and it won't. So, Mr. Gorbachev, hasten this process along. Tear down this wall. He, he also I, – I like the, the hastening it along because he, he says in effect there's, – there's, there were other cultural touchstones he could have gone to. Walls fall down in the Old Testament left and right. You know, they're torn down. They're pulled down by trumpets. You can – you know, whatever. There are many, many things that one can go to to talk about walls. You can talk about walls crumbling from earthquakes, walls crumbling from wind or water over time being breached by armies. He doesn't say any of that. He, he challenges Gorbachev to take an active role in pulling down the wall. Why is it important to say – Reagan didn't say we're going to knock the wall down. No. He didn't say someday the wall will be gone. No. He says, Gorbachev, do your part. If you want peace and prosperity and liberalization, come here and tear down this wall. Come, it, It's what – come meet me at this gate, open this gate, tear down this wall. There's a series of escalating right, things that right. Gorbachev can do. It's almost like he's saying you know that would be the right thing to do. Right. I mean you're talking about reform and restructuring. So you or certainly a part of you must sense that this would be the right thing to do. Come on, do it. If you're serious about it. And uh, Gorbachev, of course – that's that's a it's a great rhetorical flourish, but of course Gorbachev can't do that because he has a GDPR, the East Germans that he has to to deal with, and and also he has all of these satellite states surrounding the Soviet Union. Um, but Gorbachev will let it be torn down by the East Germans and the East Berliners when they finally take it into their own hands, you know, and and they see that things are slipping enough, and they grab you know hammers and sledgehammers and all the rest of it, and it's like torn down in an orgy of, uh, of private uh, demolition. Mm -hmm. And Gorbachev could have sh given the orders to shoot. I mean such orders had been given before in Eastern Europe. But, but to his credit, he forswore those. And he had even said, he would even announced uh, – we're in 1989 now, two years after the speech, he had said – you know that for nations to impose their systems on others in Europe is, would no longer be acceptable, and that's that's sort of his his green light, his admission of defeat. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, however you want to put it, but that's like giving people permission to do this kind of thing. It, it's it's easy to forget what East Germany was like. What what was East Germany? I mean, the East German government that collapses almost immediately after the the wall comes down was a hyper-paranoid, kleptocratic police state that – Well, you've seen the movie The Lives, the Lives of, of Others, others. Yeah. which does it uh, – I remember that one scene where they're uh, – they get a lecture. The higher-ups get a lecture from the guy who knows all the typewriters of all the dissidents because he studied them all and he can tell you know, if a letter is written on, on Hans's or Fritz's or this guy's or that guy's and he's got a little board with a pointer and a presentation. That's how controlled things were. Is it – what does it say then about the ability to infuse symbols with the idea of liberty that a system gripped that tight, the sand can, can hold for a very long time and then the sand just sort of slips through the hand as quickly as it does? I, is it 
is there something distinctive about liberty or is there something about the sclerosis of the East German system that meant that even without turning the wall into a symbol of this contrast between two futures, the future the West was going on and the sort of non-future the Soviet bloc was going on, even without that, presumably the wall would have eventually come down. What does the speech do in terms of making the wall the focal point that, that it scales out to everything else? Well, I think Reagan would say, you know, this should come down and it will come down because it's anti-human. It's really against our nature at the deepest possible level. I mean, he's connected with so many of the other things we've talked about in other podcasts that it's the laws of nature and nature's God. It's the benevolent father and creator of men. It's all men being created equal. This is something that is built into us and this wall stands athwart it. Can't last. We have I mean we we have walls today. Um most of the you know, we see a Chinese Communist Party that's building a paranoid, technologically enhanced surveillance state to supervise its people and in some cases put millions of them in camps for and, and supervise the NBA. Well and, and it's reaching out into American life too, exactly as you say. Um I think that that moment was an a wake up moment for a lot of people that there are still autocratic threats to liberty alive and well today and maybe even flourishing, you know, although I'm not sure China's flourishing. You know, one can make the case. Um, it seems like we, we don't have the wall to focus on. We have the NBA now. But <laughs> who, who knows how, that, how long that will last? The wall had a beneficent effect for the Western psyche as well as for the Eastern psyche, didn't it? You mean by providing so sharp a contrast? Yeah. 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 I, th I think that's fair to say. What then in an era of sort of social credit scores and digital surveillance and DNA collection by an autocratic Chinese state where we don't have a wall, we don't have a physical symbol, what can the tear down the wall speech tell us, teach us? How can we think of that as liberty enhancing rhetoric that can still work in the 21st century? Well, like all of these episodes and all the documents that they produce, they draw our attention to liberty, to what it is, to its importance, and to the fact that it has to be it has to be worked for. Uh, it has to be achieved. Uh, some in many instances, it has to be brought into existence for the first time for for particular people or for vast numbers of people. And it always has to be maintained. It's, it's never final. It's never settled. Uh, we've talked about how earlier Americans have done this. Uh, now it's our task. Now it's our problem. Now we have to think of our challenges and how we should meet them. And to your mind, do you think the repositories of liberty in the national character remain adequate to the task? Yes. Yes, sure, because because all men are created equal and we've got we've got uh, we've got 400 years of working on this. There's there's a lot to draw on.
Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.